Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. I'm Robin Harford and you can find past episodes and show notes by visiting eatweeds.co.uk. Today I'm delighted to be interviewing two wild food pioneers, Courtney Tyler and Fergus Drennan. Courtney is the owner of Hips and Hawes Wild Crafts, which is based in the Wicklow Mountains in Ireland. Her project is about wild foods, slow foods, food and drink fermentation, folk herbalism, green living, wild crafting and foraging. Fergus is a wild food experimentalist and pioneer in exploring the outer edges of wild foods and processing plants into delicious dishes. He lives in the south of England. I'm excited to have them both on the show to explore the fantastical delights of Fly Agaric, a mushroom much maligned, but as was going to be revealed, has a depth of wonder that has rarely been explored. So it's going to be a fascinating show with new knowledge being discussed and a little bit of pixie playfulness along the way. So without much ado, let's get on with the show. What's this interest with Fly Garrett? Fergus and I met at the Association of Forgers in February in Wales and we're walking up a mountain and started talking about Fly Garrick and I was very intrigued by this mushroom for a while, but not as long as Fergus had been. So he had a lot more experience and stories to tell me, which were very fascinating to me. And I've really enjoyed doing collaborations lately. It's a new thing, but reaching out and trying to co-create some experiences. And uh, Fergus responded very positively when I asked him if we might do something together in Ireland around the flag, Eric. And this really exciting day was born that we poured a lot of love and thought and consideration into. As, as Courtney says, for the whole COVID thing and you meet people and you suss them out. Are you a hugger? You're not a hugger. Are you like, I think we sussed each other out quite quickly. But, and this is a new term that we've come up with subsequently, which we both love which is that we were both definitely fly garricans uh, lovers of the fly garrick and it's very f- refreshing because to find a, a fellow fly garrican because it's a challenging fungus for, for people but as i heard courtney as i described the other day speaking quite what did i say you were speaking <laughs> Loquaciously, or something like that, uh, on the radio, <laughs> an Irish radio, the other day about the fly garrick, and she said some very important things, which is, I think, why you know had this mutual appeal for for both of us, and I expect you, Robin, as well, is that as a forager, it ticks all those boxes. It it can be edible, it can be poisonous, it can be medicinal, it can be used for spiritual practice, and it it's just such a gateway to so many discussions and so much kind of creative workings so yeah we came yeah. together on this it was interesting because the usual cultural conception of the red mushroom with white spots is oh that's the one the shamans take or people go and have a jolly in the countryside on and yet you've taken it into a whole other area of research and experimentation so psychotropic uses aside shamanic uses spiritual uses what's the real pull outside that kind of cliched identification of the mushroom 
is that oh, there's so many angles but one thing that really calls out to me is uh, i'm so intrigued by things that are demonized maybe beyond their due and i hear the fly garrick the books I read and the resources I, I've been presented and the general consensus. So when I'm walking around in the forest with a basket full of fly garrick, people stop me and say, wait a minute, what are you doing? That's deadly poisonous. You shouldn't even be touching it. And I really like to learn from myself and to share with others the true parameters of how things are edible or medicinal or, or toxic. And this mushroom isn't really so daunting. It's powerful for sure and has a fascinating history and use throughout time and i'm excited by all of those different angles that it has but apart from all of that it's just really delicious as well once it's detoxed of course which is very easy to do it's probably one of the tastiest mushrooms and it's not a difficult or lengthy process to detox they're water soluble toxins and it's as simple as generally boiling some salted water and and there's certain parameters we can talk about how, how to do that really safely for the public but it's absolutely delicious and also a very powerful medicine. So not, I'm not talking about the psychotropic effects, but I've used it really effectively as an external medicine for sciatica, which is also very appealing to me because it's had a profound effect for me personally and for the people I've shared it with. I think for me, it's just the pure playful joy of the mushroom that is the thing. And when, when I'm talking to people about foraging and, and I, I try to keep going in my own practice is to approach things as if I'm a child, always curious, always playful. And the, the fly garrick itself, although we live in a culture in, in the UK and Ireland as well, that is described as mycophobic, there is a very kind of tangible way in which even as small children, we are familiar with the fly garrick in picture books, story books, and it's not necessarily there as something scary or to be fearful of. If you're looking at these books as a kind of pre-verbal child, well, you're like two, three, it, it's just some integral part of the story. It's a character there. So that, I think that resonates with us. So I think we're primed as adults to meet that fungi. Now, in the meantime, between three or four, five or six or seven years old, we've been kind of culturally conditioned to think oh no this is that like toadstool so so when you can turn that on its head and say well actually if we get back into that playful kind of spirit of, of the child and approach it respectively with respect and just joy and creativity you can see actually there's so many more amazing dimensions to this fungus than all these things that have been overlaid on us in terms of the fear and the don't touch in in the meantime since we were younger so opening that up and challenging cultural assumptions and is, is again is as courtney says is when something has been demonized and for no good reason let's dispel that and put things on the correct footing again and acknowledge how wonderful actually the mushroom is that's really important for me to the demonizing aspect the the way a culture demonizes plants and fungi and the other and when i was discussing with some friends that i wanted to get you folks on i got serious grief <laughs> i got told that i was being irresponsible that it's just 
not something that I should be putting out into the public domain. And I just went, hang on, <laughs> there's the psychotropic side. That's fine. It has a place. It has a context. But I knew from talking with you, Fergus, and hearing you talk at the Medicinal Mushroom Conference as a attendee that it, it just goes further. Henrietta Cress with the sciatica when she initially brought that protocol to be used for sciatica, which obviously now, Courtney, you've explored and going with. And I knew that you'd eaten it, Fergus. And I was intrigued by what you were doing with it and to break it out and see the complete story of this particular mushroom is why I've asked you here. There's a thousand videos and books talking on the spiritual side. So in this particular interview, it is the food and the medicine side that I'm interested in. So the food side, basically you did a day event with some people looking at the, was it just the food uses? Or did you explore the medicine side as well? We did many things. We, we explored the medicine side. Everyone made their own external remedy, uh, tincture for the sciatica or nerve pain, as recommended by Henriette Kress. And also we fermented, we lacto-fermented the mushrooms. And Fergus kind of shined in all of his glory by creating some very fantastical, special, mind-blowing, flyagaric-based meals and desserts that kind of really push the boundaries of delicious and exciting. I have to tell you about that dessert because I must say it's, I do come up with some bonkers stuff, but that was, even for me, that was like next level bonkers. So I made it as an experimental thing, not all the components of it, but like one of the components. So like one of the key components was like based on a Mackey sushi roll, which if people that don't know, like, when we think of sushi, often people are aware of the one where you've got the nori sheet and it, it's a roll and then it's cut into segments um, and it's wrapped around rice and you have those little rounds. So it was a take on that, except instead of the, the seaweed as the outer layer, it was detoxed fly agaric that was blended with sugar and cinnamon and cloves. And when I first did this last year, I then compressed dried the whole sheet over a couple of days um, in an old trou trouser press. But this time, because we were really pushed for time, like we only had half a day to do it. So I defaulted to that wonderful invention, the food dehydrator. So it went in there. So it was dried till it was still had moisture in there, but it was easy to handle and use as a wrap. Initially, we cooked a dairy rice pudding. Um, <laughs> with elderflower because uh, we thought what can we put in it to, to make it more wild and it was elderflower and then we left it outside to cool and thankfully the dogs ate all the rice pudding <laughs> but then we made it a coconut based vegan one which actually worked out much better but still with elderflower and so that got spread when it was cool onto onto the fly garrick sheet i rolled that up and then there in the woods, I, I coloured it with beetroot-based food colouring and rolled it in flaked coconut to bring it back to what it originally was in terms of like, not more than just a nod to, but actually appearing a little bit like fly garrick. Then we cut that up. And to go with that, there were some birch polypores that I boiled in 12 changes of water to remove the bitterness. Like they were in slices and then I cooked them in a 
sea buckthorn syrup. So they looked a bit like mango and tasted like mango. That was great. Wow. And then again, when something goes wrong, like first of all, the dogs helped out in this recipe and then Courtney's freezer really helped out because we had a detox fly agaric ice cream, which was about 30% fly agaric, um, sea buckthorn leaf syrup and concentrated birch sap. But her freezer broke down. So in the end, it was just a really cold sauce. But <laughs> I think it was much better. So it was just the most bonkers <laughs> dessert, wasn't it? And we were serving it in the dark by the fire. It was just wonderful. Um, that fly agaric ice cream that Fergus made, it was also vegan based with cashew nuts and coconut cream. So it was a vegan cashew cream fly agaric ice cream sauce. But it was something else with the sushi and the very special mango mushrooms. So all together was this fantastical dessert like no one has ever seen before. How does that creativity come into being? How do you sit there pairing flavours like a chef or is there something more poetic going on? In, in order to detox it, you've removed all the psychoactive components, which when you're thinking about those being used shamanically, whether it's to, for a shaman to look into like the whole complex of issues that are resulting in the patient's condition, like the insights from the visions and things that they will have from using the psychoactive component are part of their creative interpretation. Things like that or some other kind of mild plants such as mugwort that can just shift one's perception or meditation can just facilitate the openings of one's creative faculties. But for me, I don't really do those things. These ideas come in the slow gathering of acorns. I've got loads of acorns to gather. I'm there just squatting around. Or I might just be picking some rose hips. And you just get into a certain place where just images, ideas just come. And you think, oh, yes, thank you very much. That's it. That's a good one. So they are probably the times when it kind of comes. Great. How about you, Courtney? I have to say that the culinary aspects here were all down to Fergus. I was maybe more the operations manager and assistant, but the, the food was the part that I was excited that Fergus might bring because he had far more experience with the eating of it. Uh, and yeah, he didn't disappoint. The, the creativity was, was really exciting ways to explore how this mushroom can be eaten in so many delicious ways but even without all that exciting and extravagant preparation simply detoxed and fried in some butter and salt it's it's one of my favorite ways to enjoy eating this mushroom can i just say courtney irrespective of this course you produce amazing food so like where does the inspiration come for those exactly. wonderful things i guess my biggest inspiration is i get very excited by as the same for both of you, local and wild and what's abundant around us and seasonal. And then my Venn diagram of interest is when fungi is involved and or fermentation or processes that really turn one thing into another, the alchemy that happens. Whether I'm fermenting wild drinks or concocting different brews or using it as medicine, I love the transformation that happens. And I get so excited by what's all around us that can be food and medicine. Can I just add to that? Um, 
I love to think that in there are some instances where what I'm doing is purely like something I've come up with that hasn't been done before, but that's actually really hard to do. Like the majority of the time, for example, when Courtney talks about fermentation, often what we're doing here is we're really drawing on cross-cultural traditions where that's so rich in, in experience and working in these different food preparation techniques that we can draw on those and then give it our own kind of unique playful twist. And I know Courtney's definitely doing this with uh, fermentation at the moment. <laughs> but I find for me personally, I'm deeply fascinated by what I call culture blending, which is this cross-cultural kind of being inspired by other cultures and reconfiguring it in our particular place and space into something different, new, however it particularly comes about. I find that as a metaphor for diversity and embracing diversity is, is really important actually. And I think fermentation, Courtney, Sandor Katz is just about to publish a new book called Fermentation as Metaphor, I think it is, mm -hmm. which I'm really looking forward to exploring because as with anything wild food, say, you, you can take it, uh, I'm just going to make a pesto, or you can explore further, a little bit more networked, or it teaches life lessons through the metaphor of the thing that we happen to be embracing and engaging with. And I do encourage listeners to, to really think that when you gather a, a mushroom or a plant and you want to work with it to see how deep you can go with that particular species or combination of species. But that's just a quirky side and aside. So, the processing of fly agaric, I don't know how you two are going to work this one, but just bounce off each other. Take us through it. Processing it for food and processing for medicine. Is it the same process or are there different ways of doing it? So there's definitely different processes using it as food or medicine. When I learned the technique from Henriette Herbal's website, like maybe everyone who's using it for the sciatic remedy first found it, seemed to have found it through her, it's, the toxins are still there. So we're using it as an external remedy, not internally. And it's, it's simply a alcoholic extraction of the fresh cap. And put very simply, it could be as easy as slicing the fresh, fresh cap into thin slices and putting that into vodka. It turns a nice witchy red color that can be very intimidating. It looks proper toxic and you know, blobs of mushroom floating in this bright red liquid. And you let that sit for a few weeks and shake often perhaps to help extract the components into the alcohol and water that, that the vodka is and then strain. And I bottle it into dark tincture bottles and or spray bottles actually because you want to just a few drops is all that's required. It's an external remedy only, like I said. So usually if it were for sciatica, you might put the three or four drops on your spine near where you're experiencing the pain. And I've also heard of lots of people suffering from knee pain or jaw pain that might've used this remedy as well. And again, it's only a few drops externally near the pain. 
Wow. And it's been miraculous for me. I was suffering from very serious sciatica pain over quite a few years after a bicycle accident in Dublin. And I had made my remedy and, and learned about it, but I was a bit daunted to use it. It didn't look so proper with you. Scary. And I hadn't heard firsthand yet how people might have found it. And after attending the Medicinal Mushroom Conference about four years ago, I felt very bolstered by the fact of hearing lots of people's firsthand experience and knowledge using this medicine and was experiencing the sciatica pain at the time. So I went home to my tincture already ready to use and put the three or four drops in my spine and literally almost, well, within a few minutes, I think I stood up and walked around the room and couldn't feel the pain anymore. It had been a twinging, incessant, coming and going in waves over years. Sometimes I was paralyzed for a couple of days at a time in bed, but other times it was a more niggling, constant, deep pain. Anyone who has sciatica might know that feeling. And yeah, the pain was gone. And probably about three weeks later, I just felt a little return of niggling pain and repeated the, the dosage. And again, it was gone instantly. And in that case, I didn't feel the pain again for over a year. Now, maybe once a year, I, I apply the three or four drops and that's all I need, which is it's quite, quite miraculous. I don't like to say there's miracles. It doesn't work for everyone, but it's been profound. That's very profound. My brain's just sparking off on that going, okay, so back in the day when I had maybe a back pain, I would take an opiate-based pharmaceutical codeine based and it would relieve the pain for four hours or something and then you'd have to take it again so the fact that it's now a year you haven't done it it sounds like you haven't done any body work or any manipulation to ease it is it what's going on there with that medicine because that almost feels that's going beyond just being a pain reliever and something else is is happening there's a process going on because if it was just pain based, then within a few hours, you'd have to take it again. Absolutely. I, I actually, I'm not a medical herbalist and I don't know the answer to that. I've always been intrigued maybe what the action might be. And I think more deeply, she might be more what's happening when we use black as a medicine in this way, but it seems to have an affinity for nerves, nerve pain. Yeah. And I don't need to know exactly how or why I know it was extremely effective and, I've heard the same response from maybe 80% of the people who've asked me how to make this medicine for themselves. It's been so incredible to hear the feedback. So someone had an elderly neighbor in her 80s and she was day-to-day living and they knew of this remedy and made it for her. And the same, she had the three drops and was a new person the next day, had a renewed sense of life, pain-free, wow. and the sciatica was gone. So I, I've heard probably firsthand at least 40 or 50 this now enough to know that there's something powerful at play i've again had reports anecdotal reports on just how powerful it is make a tincture use it externally and a large number of people get huge relief from something that's pretty debilitating i wish i'd known about this treatment back in 1998 99 because for two years i could barely walk with sciatica which was absolutely chronic, excruciating. I was on, I was overdosing on cocodamol. I was taking anti-inflammatories and it was a disaster. Pain isn't necessarily just 
physically located because after shuffling around and hardly being able to walk for two years, I went to a Buddhist temple in China and I got there and I was shuffling around and I've only been there in the hour for an hour. I met the kind of deputy head monk and he said, oh yes, I can see like great pain. This was through trans translation. He said, can just walk around this stupa clockwise three times and anti-clockwise saying amitofu, amitofu, amitofu. And yeah, your pain would be gone. And I'm like, and this is what was so impressive. With my kind of skeptical, like Western mind, I'm like, oh, this is stupid. It's not going to work. Oh, even if it works for others, it's not going to work for me. But I'll go through the motion because there's all these monks like watching. <laughs> so I did it three times clockwise, three times anti-clockwise, amitofu, amitofu. The pain was gone instantly. All that suffering of pain for two years, gone, never come back. And then, of course, I was the only Westerner there. And I, I just want to find other sceptical Westerners. Look, it's a miracle. Look what's happened. And of course, it was just other monks. And they're just like, yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you expect? <laughs> of course, it worked. <laughs> but it really showed me that there's far more going on to like, a lot of the conditions we have than just what's understood by the Western kind of medical tradition. So Fergus, with the food side, what's the procedure? Is this something that someone could listen to this episode and go off and process there, it? There is, but I think even let's kind of backstep a little bit. I'm going to say like why. There's so many reasons why, but in terms of my personal experience of why, I actually decided to work with Fly Agaricus Food at all. And that's because I went to Italy in like 1990. No, it was 1992, actually. And I had a delicious gourmet member of the Amanita family, which is Amanita Caesarea, or Caesar's mushroom. It's red, and it, again, it comes out of a sack like Amanitas do, but it doesn't have the white spots. And it's traditionally enjoyed just as it's breaking out of that egg in that kind of button stage. And I ate these and I thought, well, this is delicious. And then I think the main book I had at the time was uh, The Mushroom Guide that a lot of people come to first, which is Roger Phillips' Mushrooms. And I kind of looked and I think he mentions this mushroom in there, but not in the UK. And I'm like, oh, it's not in the UK. Like, what a shame. Very naive. You're just looking, well, look at this one with the red spots. It's in the same family. It looks similar. Yeah, probably tastes the same, you know. Oh, it's <laughs> Oh, it says that it's poisonous. Mm. Oh, that's a shame. It says it's poisonous, but is it? How poisonous is it? Is it as poisonous as a death cap with like non-water soluble um, toxins that are really finish you off? Or is it something else? Fortunately, these days, there's so many books and we've got internet and it's actually quite easy to research these things. So just a, a cursory look around revealed that actually you could leach out the toxins. And my thinking, well, I'd like to do that, but shall I bother? And then, because my mind went back to the odd occasion when I'd sadly eaten a can of tinned mushrooms, right? And <laughs> if I do that, it's not going to end up tasting like Caesar's mushroom. It probably just tastes like a can of tinned mushrooms. But surprisingly, that didn't put me off. I thought, well, I'll do it anyway. So my cursory looking around was just like oh, i read some accounts of people boiling them throwing away the water and and that's all right so i did that with whole mushrooms for a while and it was all right but i think the game changer for me 
which opened the gateway to being really creative and showing me that, wow, actually the possibilities are, are far greater than I thought. Was the confidence that came from re reading the article by David Aurora and William Rubel, which I can never remember the title off, offhand, but it was something like Amanita Muscaria. So something about the use of Amanita Muscaria and field guide determinations of toxicity or edibility. But the point was that uh, they were showing how all the guides, the guidebook's default was just to say that using fly gag is the, the, the iconic toxic poisonous mushroom without qualification. Yeah. Whereas what they showed looking cross-culturally, looking historically, was that it could be used for food if prepared correctly. So looking at the different ways, they system, systematized a process where for every 100 grams of fresh mushrooms sliced, no than about three millimeters thick, like you time the boil for, for 15 minutes after you put the mushrooms into hot water, they come to the boil, then you time it. Yeah, a litre of water for each 100 grams of this sliced mushroom with a teaspoon of salt. And then you throw away the water and then you rinse them. And that was their basic process. And I refined that a little bit to particularly like working with groups. I kind of, I, I, I kind of boil it in multiple changes until actually there's no red or even like yellow coming out in the water. I also take it a little step further as well, because a few years ago, I, I, I had the Merck index. It's a big kind of dictionary of chemical formula and, and melting points and structures. And, and I was just flicking through one day. It was probably one of those days when I wasn't sleeping very well. <laughs> like, well. How can I send myself to sleep? And I was flicking through and I got to M and I got to like the M-U, the M-U-M, musk. Oh, muscazone. Oh, that's interesting. What's that? And, oh, it's a toxic amino acid found in fly garrick. Now, now I didn't recall the David um, Aurora and William Rubel article of 2008 mentioning this, but it says that it denatures at 190 degrees Celsius. So my final stage is I bake the hell out of all these boiled mushrooms for an hour uh, at 220 degrees, just to make sure there's no problem. Now, the thing is with, the, with that article that they wrote, and it's often repeated, and I've seen them talk about it many times over the years and write about it, and lots of people I think have embraced Fly Garrick as food through that article. And if there was any real issue with, with the muscazone in there, I think that would have been flagged up big time by now. I'm not saying this because I think they've, they've missed something out and that they should have mentioned it. It's, I think they, they probably looked into it and really it's not significant. Um, as we know with all like foods and medicine, you take muscazone as an extract away from everything else. And yeah, sure, it's going to probably do you some damage, but in the quantities there. But I guess my, my reasoning is that if I'm working with a group and someone in the group has seen this toxic amino acid that's in there and we're just talking about the water soluble thing like you've got to have an answer to that so to inspire confidence that would be my extra step 
to advise. Having researched a lot and then hearing about how it was used as a food, the first time I ever tried it, I simply detoxed it by boiling it. I boiled it two times in changes of water and then fried it in a frying pan with some butter and salt, which was the same thing we did the next night. Actually, we only boiled it once and we didn't experience anything but a delicious food. There were no psychoactive unintended consequences. I've never experienced the psychoactive side of Flygerk. Just to be clear, for me, it's always been a food or a medicine. So yeah, we enjoyed a very delicious dinner. So I think it seems to be, I, I've done this on numerous occasions now, as simple as a, a boil and change of salted water. Even only once seems to remove enough toxins that I experienced nothing but a delicious food. Mm. But obviously, when cooking for the public, we took extra precautions just to be very sure. But Fergus is in my experience on this has been that even one boil of water change for 15 minutes is more than enough. The only thing I would add to that is I had this experience where I'd followed the, the general advice and slicing it as I described and boiling in that way with a teaspoon of salt and and maybe you wouldn't ordinarily have this situation because at that point after boiling, as Courtney did, she, she just cooked it in butter and we had it with soy sauce and it was absolutely superb. Like it's up there with all the other mushrooms. But I'd done this in one change of water a few years ago and I had so many, I thought I can't really eat all the, these today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dry them. I've detoxed them. I'm going to dry them. Now, the thing is the <laughs> ibotenic acid that gets converted to muscomol on drying, right? which is five times stronger in terms of its psychoactive uh, influence. So if you've taken detoxed mushrooms and you've dried them, potentially you're increasing the, 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 the potential power um, of anything that's there still. So I have direct experience of this. So those ones that I dried after boiling once, I ate them in a risotto about a month later after rehydrating them. And there was definitely something a little different around here. It, it was subtle, but definitely the feeling of having ingested fly garrick deliberately, that it was the beginning of that experience, but not developing into anything. So, so that is why I refined the procedure to boiling it until you can see no yellow in the liquid because then I don't think that would be an issue. So that's just yeah. my thoughts on that. I think the dinner that we enjoyed actually, not only is it delicious, it was like, I've heard it likened to chicken before. It was like a crispy chicken, kind of meaty, delicious, rich flavor. It was really absolutely incredible. So have you fermented it, Connie? Yeah, haven't yet the fermented version. I also don't like this canned slimy mushroom experience that kind of puts me off. I really like crispy and tasty and caramelized. We, we uh, have some fermenting now and I'll be very happy to eat them and know that it's a safe, delicious food. But I might actually go a step further inspired by Noma and other places, the things they do with food. And another process of alchemy would be to dehydrate the mushroom. So I think for fermenting of mushrooms, I was highly inspired by the work of Pascal Baudard. He's a Belgian fermenting, wild foraging master, and he lives in California. His books have been very inspirational to me. And there's a lot of pickling of mushrooms, but I don't often hear of lacto-fermenting of mushrooms. And in fact, it, it seems they don't have lactobacillus on them or not in sufficient quantity, 
for fermenting easily. So you have to take an extra step in the process by introducing a culture, maybe a previous lively ferment. And so that's what we did. And we, we added in a, a lively kimchi juice to kick off the fermentation. And they're fermenting now and they're salty and slimy and tasty. And because I don't like that texture of the slimy mushroom um, inspired by Noma in Copenhagen, um, they've done a lot of additional processes, sometimes dehydrating the mushrooms after they've been fermented. Yeah. And that extra step introduces a, an exciting texture, which I find far more appealing. And uh, there's a recipe that we made together for the event also that was using seps rather than fly garrick. But I might actually recreate the process with fly garrick in the future because the, the flavor was absolutely incredible. They were lacto-fermented and then the juice, the liquid was removed and they were then marinated in maple syrup and then dehydrated. Wow. And the flavor, they were like mushroom umami jellies, which huh. might not sound so appealing, but actually maybe on a cheese plate or something was this absolutely mouth exploding deliciousness. And that texture, the chewiness was very attractive to me. Mm. It was a whole new thing. It was like a mushroom I've never tasted before. It was very far from what a sep was something very new i can verify this and also that courtney was acting like a cat around catnip on the dehydrator sheet she was like there was like tiny like bits of stickiness and she was scraping every precious morsel off that was stuck there <laughs> um, and for good reason because it was so good it's a big yes yeah but we did incorporate that and i thought this was a radical step is when we begun our course we'd spoken about fly gag for, for you know, five or 10 minutes and introduce people immediately, which would be a pretty kind of radical step into moving into embracing a whole day thinking about Fly Garrick is that we tried a candied one that was just salt candied, very basically a slice in, in sugar after detoxing. And it, it was really hard and, and crunchy, like non-sticky to the touch. And the other one, we thought we'd give them a sweet and a savory. The other savory taster, was one that had just been detoxed and was put in Courtney's, what do you call it? The ferment. Uh, fermented sep juice. <laughs> the fermented sep juice before going on to add the, the, the syrup. So we marinated it in that overnight and the, so for a sweet and savory version. The exciting angles are what? I, I said to Courtney when, when we'd finished this event, I said, yeah, this could be the, it had the feeling like it could build into something a week long celebration of the festival of the Fly Garrick because there are all those elements the, the food, the medicine, the spiritual practice, the, the poetry, the stories, the, 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 the kind of artwork. Like, you could have so much fun dressing up in, in ridiculous costumes, <laughs> music, dancing. So, Courtney, what's your website address? Or where, how can people find you? Find me best on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, hips and Haas Wildcats. Those hips and Hawthorne berries. And uh, that's where I update things most regularly. So you can find me there. Great. Fergus, how can people get in touch with you? FergusTheForager.co.uk. That's my new super revamped website. Yeah. Check it out. Great. Thank you both for coming on. Uh, great to speak to you both. Bye. Bye.